Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Banging in there. That's good. So you're in uh, Illinois? Yep, for now. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, Are you in uh, New Jersey or uh, Australia? For now, <laughs> no. I was, uh, I was in. I was just. Uh, let's see. When I when I woke up uh, yesterday morning, I was in. Um, I was in Sydney, and then the morning before that, I was in uh, Queenstown, uh, New Zealand. So, yeah. But I but I'm awake now. I wasn't awake this morning, but I'm awake now. Well, good. That's it's important to be awake uh, when podcasting. I think that's the unwritten rule: is the the coffee thing, the uh, the note card thing, and the <laughs> being awake thing. Well, and also sitting close to the router. And you're sitting close to the router, right? Very, very close. I'm, I'm sitting on the router. <laughs> it's got to be a little uncomfortable. Uh, all my ports are in, engaged. <laughs> Oh, so um, so we're we're recording, and we should probably explain uh, for people that are listening um, to the recording of this, which will be posted probably in about a month or so. Um, that I'm not talking to Ben, um, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, if you if you are a longtime uh, fan of the podcast, you will recognize the. Uh, the dulcet tones on the other end as Mike Batts, who was a guest on uh, Food Safety Talk Episode 4, as well as Food Safety Talk uh, Episode 24. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Well, that's, uh, it's good to be here. I think I'm much more sober than the last time I was on this podcast. I don't know. You sound pretty much the same. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so welcome. So, so you had shared with me a couple of things, uh, that you wanted to talk about. And, uh, actually at least one of those things I very much definitely wanted to talk about. And then I had shared with you a couple of things. Um, can we, can we start with, uh, Chobani yogurt? Sure. So, so what do you think about this? Um, so what we're, what we're talking about, and again, we will link to this in the show notes is, uh, uh, a link that you shared with me from food safety news, which is, Pretty much, other than Barth Blog, is pretty much how I find out about everything going on in the food safety world, um, at least immediately. And I knew, um, I actually knew that something was going to happen today because I got a phone call. Actually, I, I uh, got a, phone, a message while I was flying over the Pacific, and I, and I returned the phone call when I was in the uh, SFO airport yesterday from uh, Alejandro Mazota, who is the VP of Food Safety, I think Food, food Safety and Quality at Chibani, um, uh, because he had you know, learned that this Ambio article was coming out. And obviously Alejandro, uh, yeah, Vice President for Global Quality Food Safety and Regulatory Affairs is his official title in the uh, Food Safety News article. Um, and he was, to put it mildly, let's say a little concerned about the publication of this article. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine, <laughs> I imagine so. So what, uh, what's your, and so, and so again, we'll link to the Food Safety News article. I did um, find the Ambio article, and, and we'll, we'll post a link to that as well, which the people in Food Safety News did not see fit to link to, which is, again, yes, yeah. one of my pet peeves with all news articles that talk about science is, you know, for the three of us that are primary researchers, please give us a link. I mean, we can Google it, yes, but how hard is it, right? Um, and they had to have looked at the link anyway um, to to pull the quotes for their 
you know, for their well, piece. But anyway, sometimes what happens is they get an advance mm. copy, so they don't actually mm-hmm. they're not getting it through the journal. They're getting it through, you know, the press office or whatever. So they might not even have the link, I suppose, as possible. You know, well, they could and, have it in and, advance or something. Yeah, and, and I mean, they wouldn't. We wouldn't want them to have to actually, like, I don't know, do any research on anything, right? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much how you do journalism these days, right? Is you get a press release and you 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 just write your article from that, right? Well, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to me just in general that when you read a news story – so if you read a journal article, obviously there's citations all over the place. I mean depending on what you're reading, but you know, you make a statement, you, you source it, and it just – that doesn't happen in news. And it's always unusual to me because now with hyperlinking – you know, it's so easy, but yet you read so many news articles where something stated is fact and, and it's not really backed up. And it, because of hyperlinking, it wouldn't really change the article to, you know, to cite that back. But it's just, it's just typically or not typically, but it's it's just not done often enough. Well, and it just seems like a simple courtesy. I mean, it's like when I, I mean, I, you know, do not I want to give people page views, Don. I know, you, you know, you never send anybody away from food safety doc dot biz <laughs> yeah. plumbing yeah yeah oh it's uh i don't know it's just it's very it's very discouraging because yeah i understand page views and i understand the need to generate revenue but you know deliver a quality you know piece of journalism first and then and then everything else should follow but anyway that's just that's just me what do i know i don't have a real job um, so, so anyway, so what's your, so what's your take on this, um, this, um, this, uh, MBio article and, or, uh, Chobani's response to it? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think what, a few things interesting. Um, I, I think that it's fungal is, is interesting cause we don't talk a lot about fungal pathogens. Um, I think it's interesting because, uh, I, and again, I, I've, I've scanned the MBio article a little bit more than the abstract, but not that much but it does seem that they you know isolated this particular strain from from a a package of chobani yogurt which is i think very interesting and and then finding a it, what's not clear to me is whether the strain is virulent only in murine uh and in the sort of animal models or whether it's also a known uh human pathogen i wasn't able to to quite isolate you know figure that out before the call Today, but I, I think that all those things make it kind of interesting because this is a spoilage organism, and then all of a sudden there are strains of it that are pathogenic. And I think it speaks to w- what's just interesting about food safety overall is that there's this constantly shifting landscape, and that that maybe pertain, you know, that may be what's going on here, just as it's the same way, and that we have different serotypes of Salmonella kind of coming in and out of uh, of the news, or or you know, the way that maybe. Um, you know, non-0157 S-Techs sort of emerge. You sort of have this interesting changing landscape all the time for uh, for something that you maybe consider to be non-pathogenic, to become pathogenic, or or whatever. It's, so to me, it's more interesting, I think, from those aspects than it is to do with... I mean, epidemiologically, it's interesting because you had a lot of people reporting illness um, and yet no sort of defined source before. So it, it's kind of interesting to look back and say, well... Would we have sort of isolated this, say, 20 years ago or would it have just been a, a rumor or, or sort of a scare? So to me, there's just a million things that, that run through my head that are interesting about this. Uh, 
this outbreak or yeah. po- possible outbreak. <clears throat> well, yeah, and I think uh, that was, you know, certainly I think one of the things that uh, I imagine Chobani is concerned about is calling it an outbreak because um, yep, FDA just got, is – I just got a cease and desist letter. <laughs> They're good. Oops. Okay. <laughs> say that anymore you, well you can say what you want um <laughs> this is a podcast apparently uh there's no rules speaking of which i listen mm. to all my podcasts at like one and a half speed so right now you sound mildly mildly brain damaged but no everything is <laughs> it's moving at a, a glacial pace your vo- your voice is uh, i'm not used to your uh, your voice being at this uh, this comfortable slow <laughs> you so know, I feel I, like I'm running and, and you're walking. But oh, that's how oh, that's fascinating. Um, so I, I listen to all my podcasts at the normal speed um, because that's what humans do. Civilized like animals humans. do, Tom. I mean, Tom, why did I call you Tom? <laughs> all right, see, maybe I have been drinking. But uh, yeah, actually, I was just listening to the latest episode of the talk show, which is some ungodly length, um, which probably needs to be listened to at 1.5. But I think uh, Gruber made a, a, a comment or, or his guest, um, uh, uh, Dave Weiner or Weiner, um, uh, made some, one of them made a comment about always listening to podcasts at 1.5 speed. But yeah, I mean, that was Gruber. But I just I uh, I don't know. I just uh, I skip. I fast forward through the commercials sometimes, but. <laughs> Don't say that. Well, news. only, uh, only the only for the products that I already buy, own, and tell other people about. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So yeah. So they make a couple of statements, and again, I've probably done um, a, a slightly even more superficial reading of the article, um, but. You know, they, they make a couple of statements in the abstract, which is, of course, what people, you know, many people only will read the abstract, um, that I'm not sure are, are supported by the article. So they say this, the last, uh, the last line of the abstract, they say this study demonstrates that M. Uh, Circinelloides can spoil food products. Well, I'm not sure that they demonstrated in the article that, they, that it could spoil food products. I mean, I guess it probably did if it was isolated from the yogurt, but but their study didn't demonstrate that. And then it also says that it can. Uh, that this study demonstrates that this organism can cause gastrointestinal illness in consumers, and they didn't do that either, right? They showed that it could um, it could survive transit through the GI tract of mice, okay, and they showed. Um, Interactions with human immune cells, it could introduce a plo, uh, could in, could induce pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then another species didn't. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, the, the science is probably okay. I mean, it's you know, um, but but I just, uh, uh, I just, I think they're overreaching, and I think this is fairly common in people that publish in food-related areas that are not food scientists or who, who are not more embedded in that, in that, uh, uh, that environment. And maybe, maybe it's because those of us that work in food safety need to be careful not to irritate our, our food industry colleagues, but it may also be because we just have an appreciation of like that words mean certain things and we need to use those words in a very specific way because it matters in the, 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 you know, the context that we're in working, working as we do in the food industry. Right. Well, I think there's part of it is the leap, the leap from the science to its uh, policy relevance often, uh, or, you know, in this case, maybe uh, human health relevance, it, it gets 
stretched a little bit or the uncertainty or the the sort of the context gets lost when you make the leap from the bench science to sort of what it means to the wider world. And of course, it's important to make that distinction. But that was one thing that, that wasn't entirely clear to me, because when I first read the the food safety news piece, it read like this is a known, you know, that this strain, that there's a known strain here that causes human illness. And then when I started reading the, the MBio article, which, you know, the the institutions anyway that are involved with the study are not sort of fly-by-night uh, kind of operations, um, you know, it, it was a little bit less clear to me whether whether there was sort of other evidence here linking this strain or whether they're really trying to demonstrate on the, on, you know, based on a murine model and a wax moth model, you know, that this is, that this is virulence and that it is the epidemiological cause, right? Because they're, they're not epidemiologists, uh, as far as I can tell. So they're, they, they got the strain from a, a thing of yogurt that some people who said they got sick ate. But it's not like the, this research, at least doesn't seem to me, was connected to the broader sort of epidemiological picture where you have all these illnesses going on or, or whatever. It's sort of taking a piece out of this. And, and it, again, even there, it may be connecting the dots too much because you don't, you know, uh, you don't quite know the context for where the sample came from and, and all this other stuff. And, and, and particularly if, if this is uh, a strain that's maybe everywhere, right? You isolate it from one spot, but that doesn't mean that it's not everywhere all over the place. And, uh, you know, we're, we're encountering it every day or something like that. You know, there's the, there's none of that context here to kind of draw this conclusion, but, uh, but, but it, but it is interesting if, if it's, if it is the case that, uh, that this is a, you know, potentially pathogenic strain of a, you know, a spoilage organism. Right. And, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things that the authors include as supplemental material is the text of a note from the folks who provided the contaminated yogurt. And uh, so what they write in that, in that note, which is available as supplemental material uh, to the journal article, so you can click through to the links and find that. And I'll just read from the note uh, because I think this confounds it even more. Um, uh, my husband developed nausea and vomiting for two days. I was not as sick. Uh, to, and and what, what, so the yogurt was actually used in a casserole as a healthy alternative to, to sour cream. Um, and what she writes is um, – Let's see. Makes me suspicious about the likelihood of there being a mycotoxin not affected by heat or a toxin that needs more heat to destroy it. Insufficient heat for insufficient time to kill the mold spores. So this is the consumer writing this. So this is a pretty literate consumer. Um, right. th- there was no visible mold at the time of consumption. None of the carton of yogurt was eaten raw. It was cooked in a ca- it was in a casserole it was cooked for at least 30 minutes at 350 degrees now again that we don't have a casserole temperature but that's pretty hot for pretty long um uh, and then I noticed five days after making the casserole, the recall in the newspaper, checked the carton of yogurt in my refrigerator, still within the use-by date, opened the container for inspection, noticed a foul odor and copious mold growing in the container. So, But it apparently was not moldy at the time of consumption. By this time, my husband was just recovering from his vomiting. Um, uh, which ensued the morning after his second serving of the casserole. Um, anyway, so I don't know. I mean, certainly this did not meet 
it was it was not a class one recall. Okay, it did not meet that that standard approved for the FDA. Um, as far as I know, you know, for me, the gold standard of a real outbreak is that Marler takes cases, right? <laughs> and he has not right. taken any cases. So as far as I'm concerned, this is not an outbreak. This is certainly an interesting event. And, and certainly, I mean, the whole reason why I think why Alejandro is even at Chobani is uh, he was brought in after this recall because you know, this is a company, again, growing like crazy, maybe needs some, you know, some a more senior person at the level of, you know, food safety and quality that has, you know, some significant industry experience. And Alejandro certainly has that. So I don't know. I mean, again, I'm all in favor of science, but I just, I don't like it when people uh, get it wrong and, and overreach. And again, you know, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm sure that I overreach in my articles and I get annoyed when reviewers call me on it, but I, I don't know. It's just the, the Every fact one that- of my articles starts with one in six Americans get sick from foodborne illness <laughs> and ends with we need more research. So pretty much in between, it's all garbage anyway. But no, I, I, I think that it is, you know, you're, you're doing the science and then it connects to this sort of very highly, not necessarily in this case politicized, but, but a sort of current event story that provides the, I don't know, the catalyst to get it in the news or whatever. And it, uh, it, it, it sort of changes things because it's not um, it's not coming out sort of five years later or something like that. It's still very much in the the sort of the, the midst of um, you know this sort of post incident or post issue world, right? Where it's still very fresh. I think. I mean, pushing back a little bit on the on the outbreak stuff and Marler and and whatever. Um, I, I think part of it is that the illnesses were mild and nobody died and. Uh, uh, you know, so whether whether it's like you know real or not is somewhat you know even if it was real, it, it's not something that I would classify as you know a major ongoing threat. You know, unlike something like the Foster Farms thing, which has been going on for what sixteen years now. No, but oh. it's uh, you know this is this is a sort of a di- of a different magnitude in terms of um, its potential human health impacts. It's just kind of novel and interesting and that's kind of what provides the i guess the meat for discussion you know yeah well in in fairness to foster farms i think the outbreak has only been going on for two years and they did (laughs) they did do a recall on one day's production um from a batch of a product that was produced in march so yeah yeah the day before the fourth of july Right. <laughs> you think the timing was specific? Oh uh, well, you know, according to to some people in Congress, but uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that at all. But I mean, do you remember when? Um, I think it was. I think Marler used to always say these things always drop on a Friday, and then uh, he went back and they analyzed all these press releases, and it turned out. Uh, turns out uh, that wasn't the case. It's it's actually. Uh, they seem they seem to they seem to have been uh, more evenly distributed. Now I'm speaking a little bit out of uh, thin air because I don't have any of that stuff in front of me. But I I seem to recall that you know that being kind of an ongoing conspiracy theory is that these things are always dumped on a Friday. And I think if you talk to people at CDC, they they always feel like this stuff happens on a Friday because they're working the weekends. Uh, so I don't think they really want to work the weekends. But uh, 
Uh, so it may, maybe there is, you know, but I think there is this perception that these things always drop on a Friday or in this case, a Thursday afternoon. Well, and and maybe it's just the memorableness, but I would say certainly um, very often when I get a call from a food company, it comes on a Friday. And usually it's the Friday before a long holiday weekend when all of a sudden they realize that, you know, stuff is hitting the fan and they need to take some action. Yeah. Um, but again, that may just be my memory because I don't remember the times when it dropped on a Tuesday and I just handle it during my normal work week because that's what I do in my normal work week. So, yeah. Yeah. So any, do you have anything else on Chobani? No, no. Or on, on M bio article, I guess it's not really on Chobani. So <laughs> we'll just keep saying Chobani illness. Chobani. No, 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 no. We'll stay Chobani delicious <laughs> yogurt. Cause I'm an industry shill, Mike. Oh, I know. I know all about it. <laughs> Oh yeah. So uh, yeah. So um, anyway, interesting, and we'll see how this uh, we'll see how this plays out, um, uh, it, or if it has any any legs, as they say. Um, so um, <clears throat> and just because what as as you know, Mike, because I'm sure you listen to the podcast from time to time. Um, uh, one of the things that Ben and I like to do is to talk about stuff that's not food safety related. And one of the things that I shared with you um, that it also has actually a kind of a scientific bent. And, and part of the reason why it's in the news is because it has a scientific bent is this recent um, hubbub that's been been talked about on, on at least a number of the podcasts that I listen to, um, uh, tech podcasts, which is um, this uh, Facebook um, – <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll link to the uh, – uh, AV Club article entitled uh, Facebook Tinkered with Users' Feeds for a Massive Psychology Experiment. And it was literally a psychology experiment, <clears throat> which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And and got to give props to the AV Club because guess what? In the, uh, the first line and the second line, they link uh, the reader to the primary literature. So you can actually find uh, you can have a, there's a link to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and there's also a link to the the published paper. So, do you do you have an opinion on that on on what Facebook did and how they did it that you'd like to share? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm not sure when. If you, I don't have any any emails from you or anything with oh. with this link, but I did see the the story separately. So I'm not sure uh, if there's other things that you sent me like. Mm. Salacious photographs or anything, but uh, no, those are those are to your those. those are to your personal account. But I no, here I, oh, I I just I sent it at uh, ten minutes before uh, ten minutes before one my time. It's with the heading uh, important considerations. It was a response to your message. Oh, I don't I don't have anything. Oh, but uh, anyway, UF has been uh, having some uh, some email issues. Anyway, I'm sure everybody comes for the technical difficulties, but and they <laughs> they stay for the vomit talk. But uh, the uh, <laughs> No, but I mean, obviously, I mean, I think it's, I think it's fascinating in part because, I mean, Facebook is messing with feeds all the time. I mean, obviously, there's something here about informed consent that being at a university, you could never kind of just do this to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously disgusting, but I'm still using Facebook uh, as much as I despise it. And you know, a couple of couple of comments. So number one, apparently, <clears throat> when you opt into Facebook, you part of the boilerplate text or part of the text that nobody ever reads is that you know you could be part of uh, uh, an experiment like this. So apparently, I think it's by just a general, we can we mm -hmm. can we can f with you. I mean, it's mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between informed consent though and agreement to terms of service and. Uh, 
I think you know it's stretching it. What, what's a, what's appropriate for terms of service with a, with uh, with a company seems to me a little bit differently than informed consent in a social experiment. But uh, but so, I don't know. I think the big problem was publishing it in a journal rather than just you know doing kind of what OKCupid does, which is you know here's a blog post with some interesting things we found. And I, I don't quite understand why they had to mess with feeds to find this. I mean. Leaving aside the, the issues with sort of interpreting uh, text as happy or sad, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the methodological stuff there is just mind-boggling to me. But how, how you make the leap, you know, the software that's used to um, analyze, say, a book, and then you're applying it to kind of tweet-length things, and you're losing all the nuance and, uh, and so forth. I, I just have a hard time tr- trusting the science very much on its own, but, but then sort of overlaying that on top of the fact that I don't see why they couldn't just have looked at people's feeds uh, and differentiated mm. them essentially as populations into people who had positive feeds and negative feeds and see if it it sort of cycled back. I mean, you wouldn't maybe get the same cause effect kind of thing there, but it seems like there are other ways to get at the same question that wouldn't involve this kind of tinkering. Mm. Well, but you could say that maybe people that are, as sad tend to follow things that make them sad. You know, it's cause and effect. I think you, you hit the nail right on the head there. Whereas this way they have a, a, a population <clears throat> randomly determined population and they, they take part of it and they, they, they skew the feeds for that population to be more happy, have more happy words and they look for more happy words coming from that person and vice versa. Right. So. But say you, no matter what your feed is, uh, if somebody else gets married or somebody has a relative or a cat, that dies or something like that, you can, you have this temporal effect going on mm. where you can have these events and you could measure before mm. and after those events. Right. You could, yeah, you could establish a baseline for an individual person as to what, what the ratio of happy to sad words was in their feed or something. And then, yeah, look at natural disruptions. Yeah. It, it just seems like a pretty well suited to, to sort of that kind of natural experiment kind of model. But, uh, you know, what do I know? I'm not a social scientist. I'm not even a scientist. <laughs> All right. Well, you consider yourself an engineer? I don't know. A professional <laughs> podcaster without a podcast. Uh, well, it's a good thing I had you on then. Jeez, what are you just sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting for somebody to ask you on a podcast? Well, it's like 25,000 hours of practice. So I just mostly talk to Talk to yourself? <laughs> and to my kids. I, I uh-huh. podcast to my children. Oh, so speaking speaking of, of <laughs> yeah, speaking of, of family stuff. So one of the things that I learned about you from Facebook um, is that actually I'm very envious of the fact that you, um, I guess by virtue of your wife having a, a gig in uh, Amsterdam, you guys spent several months there living. Yeah, living about in two Amsterdam? and a half months we lived in in Amsterdam. Pardon me, uh, right right near the uh, the uh, the Rijksmuseum sort of museum district there. Yeah, my wife teaches. Uh, art history, and uh, so she was uh, basically teaching a term abroad, and uh, and so we all decided to go rather than me being a single dad for ten weeks. So well, and and probably your wife was busy, so you were just a single dad in uh, in Amsterdam. Well, we we did have we did have a little bit of uh, uh, some some uh, family uh, uh, nannying help. Oh, nice. Came along. So, nice. but we were all we were all in a small apartment as opposed to the house, uh, and uh, it was obviously uh, harder to get get work done, mostly because I was smoking dope all day. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, 
but no, I mean, there's a lot more to Amsterdam than that. It's just a beautiful, you know, beautiful city. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful springtime. So it was, uh, it was nice to be in a city again, uh, where I live right now in, in Illinois, um, in, uh, Western Illinois, right on the Mississippi where I'm pretty much uh, swimming in the, the engorged, uh, Mississippi right now, uh, it's just not a not a big city like that, and, and having moved here from D.C., uh, I've kind of missed that uh, that large city feel. So it was nice to kind of get back in the middle of that uh, again, even though you know Amsterdam isn't exactly the the densest you know real city on earth, but it's still pretty cosmopolitan and uh, pretty wonderful place to spend a couple months in the springtime yeah i uh I just even having you know never stayed for a longer period of time than a couple of days it's just a great a great city and the, the spring is a great time to be there so were you there during the like the the tulip festival time yeah i was there during the tulip festival i was there during uh barack obama's visit uh during the um uh coming to the hague as part of i think um was it the the ukraine stuff i can't remember the exact context but uh or if it was uh it was something else but there were yeah so it was a pretty kind of crazy time to be there yeah but we were there and we visited these these uh, tulip fields that just go on for just miles and miles and uh yeah all that was uh everything was in bloom while we were we were there oh that's that's great yeah it's a really is a wonderful city it's the first I was going to say one of the first places in Europe that I ever visited as a young uh, assistant professor. I was asked to go teach in a short course there, and it was a short course. The experience wasn't wasn't that great, but man, what a lovely city! And I've every ever since then, I've never missed an opportunity if I can get back to get back. And unfortunately, with the uh, United Continental merger, it means that we uh, no longer have those great that great partnership with. Um, uh, uh, KLM airlines and, you know, changing in skip, skip all airports. So instead it's, it's probably, um, uh, uh, Lufthansa and, and, uh, changing in, in, uh, uh, Munich or, or Frankfurt. So don't have that nice, uh, that nice connection and excuse to get through, uh, travel through Schiphol airport and maybe, maybe take a day or two there. So it's, it's unfortunate, but yeah, I'm, I'm very, if you can't, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm very envious of the time that you spent there. It was so. also good because uh, I got to spend some time with, um, some Dutch colleagues there who do, you know, infectious disease research out at the, uh, RIVM there. Yep. And, uh, you know, they're, they're outside the city by a bit. Uh, out, outside of Utrecht and Beethoven, but um, you know, got to go out there a couple times. So I did get some actual uh, work networking in. But I wanted to ask you about mm. Finland and oh, uh, okay. raw reindeer meat. <laughs> oh, this is Mike. You should have a professional podcast. You should be a professional podcaster. Um, so yeah, so uh, so so yeah, so thanks for that. So yeah, and I just want to say too. I mean, yeah, uh, the the Dutch scientists that do the kind of work that that you and I do are, I think, really among the best in the world. And and so yeah, very envious of the opportunity to interact with the RIVM folks as well. But um, yeah, so Finland Finland was very interesting. It was a so I should explain too. Part of the reason why I was there was well, the, no, the the reason why I was I only came for the raw reindeer meat. Um, no, the the reason I was there was there was a conference organized by some folks at the uh, essentially the Finnish um, public health agency um, around HACCP and the future of HACCP. And so there's um, uh, a gentleman there um, who is active in Codex Alimentarius and, and you know, the, the Codex definition of HACCP and the Codex HACCP documents have some age on them and they're getting to be a little bit dated. And so um, Sebastian uh, Heim 
um, basically put together this conference and invited a bunch of people from the U.S. as well as around the world. On the U.S. side, you know, listeners of this podcast might know uh, Katie Swanson, who's an uh, executive board member at IAFP with me, as well as Jenny Scott uh, from FDA, who's a former uh, uh, past president of IAFP, um, and as well as, again, folks from around the world, and, and basically to talk, for us to come and talk about <clears> – <throat> the um, the future of HACCP and where we thought HACCP was going um, and, and what ought to happen. And, and so potentially that, that proceedings of the conference or the, the output of that conference, the, the collected wisdom compiled in, you know, some a few short text documents will form the input for a document that's going to be written, uh, written by these folks in Finland to serve as input for Codex Alimentarius on, on modifying what may be the Codex documents on HACCP. So pretty exciting opportunity to, to tweak a, a pretty major document or to write something that might eventually impact a pretty major document in, in five years or something. But, um, but Finland was wonderful. We've um, we've managed to my wife and I have managed to be in uh, Scandinavia right around the longest day of the year, pretty much um, in all of the major. Um, uh, Scandinavian countries, with the exception of Norway, we have yet to make it to Norway around that time of year. But uh, that's that's next on our list. But so so, fin- but Finland is very interesting. It's a it's a it's an interesting. I mean, there's certainly a very strong. Swedish influence. One of the things that we we heard while we were there r- repeatedly was, you know, the the Finnish talking about their history, and they have kind of been this pawn in uh, uh, between uh, Sweden on the one side, who's who's you know b- basically they become they were part of Sweden, and then also Russia on the other side. And I did not, I mean, I kind of knew that they were they were close, but I didn't realize that actually St. Petersburg, which is the largest Russian city that's, that's anywhere close to Norway, was would only have been like a, a one and a half hour flight. So uh, we didn't, weren't organized enough to go and visit there. But you can see that the culture is a very interesting mix of, I would say it mostly feels Scandinavian, but with this kind of weird influence that you can't quite put your finger on, at least somebody like me who's, who's never uh, traveled much in Eastern Europe and never been to Russia, there's just kind of this weird other influence, which I would I would trace to the their, their Russian interactions in history. So, um, and yes, and at the, at the, the, the big banquet for this group of food safety people, they served reindeer tartare, um, and um, so my wife was the uh, control. She didn't eat any. Um, I ate about uh, half of the serving. It, did, it didn't. It wasn't like fabulous. Like oh, I got to have more of this. Um, and then oh, but but more on eating uh, raw meat in, in just a minute with respect to my latest trip. But um, then. Um, uh, Katie Swanson ate the whole thing. <laughs> so, and as far as I know, none of us got sick. But um, as Katie said uh, several times, I think mostly to reassure herself, well, it tastes smoked. I'm sure that they killed all the pathogens on the outside. So, oh, yeah, um, definitely guaranteed. No, I've de- never had uh, I've never had raw reindeer. I've never I did while I was in Amsterdam. They eat something there. They call. Um, like sandwich Americane or spread Americane, which is basically a raw ground beef. Uh, that's m- more like a paste, so it almost looks like um, tomato paste, but it's actually uh, the, the flesh, bovine flesh. Uh, and then, uh, you know, or in Italy, they they in parts of Italy and France, I think they eat pesto cavallo. You know, basically uh, horse raw horse meat pesto. That's similarly like a 
like a spread. And I've always sort of said, well, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, but I never, never quite uh, bring myself to do it. But I, I've been to Finland actually a number of times. Uh, my family is uh, Finnish or half my family is Finnish. And my brother is actually the uh, American CEO for a, a small Finnish uh, tech company that, that does some, uh, some secure SMS type uh, uh, stuff on mobile. And so we, he's been a lot longer and a lot more than I, but, but, you know, speaking of St. Petersburg, I was, we were visiting Finland in 1993 and been, had been planning a, uh, a trip to St. Petersburg when the coup happened. Uh, so we were, we were very nearby there and, uh, you know, Finnish history is very interesting because I think you mentioned uh, Sweden and, uh, and Russia and my, my grandfather actually fought in the, the winter war uh, between uh, Russia and uh, Finland, where they sort of divided up some of that that border uh, back in the I guess it was the uh, I guess in the 39, 1939, 1940. And um, but, you know, it also led to a very awkward uh uh, relationship with the allies during World War II because uh, obviously they were not going to be allies with the Soviets. Uh, and there is actually a lot of, I think, German history in, in, uh, in Finland as well. Some of the generals and stuff were, were of, of German descent. So they were sort of neither Axis nor ally during World War II, but they were not... Uh, actually, my grandfather emigrated to the United States by jumping ship in New York Harbor. They weren't allowed to uh, to come to port, and uh, that's how he uh, uh, basically emigrated to the United States. So, Finland's always a very interesting to, place to me. Did, did you? Did you? Uh, well, two questions. Did you? Did you do mostly? Uh, were you mostly in Helsinki? And, and second question: uh, Did you sauna? Um, good. Good. Two very very good questions. So, unfortunately, we were not. Um, mostly in Helsinki, we were uh, actually at a, a conference site, which was. Oh, probably a, a 20 to 25 minute walk from the nearest train station. And then from the train station into Helsinki was probably a half an hour to 45 minutes. So, and again, my wife was with me. So, and there's nothing to do at this conference center. Um, so that made it a little bit difficult. Um, but we did, uh, after the conference ended, we went into, we, we, our flight back wasn't until Monday. And so we spent the, uh, the weekend in, uh, in Helsinki and, and did get to see a, a bit of the, of the city and, and, and enjoy that very much. Um, and no, unfortunately there was a sauna night that was organized as part of the conference. And I was just, just too tired and I decided to not to do it, but, but it is a huge part of it. You cannot, cannot, I cannot overstate the hugeness of that, that sauna plays in their, in their culture. It's just, uh, it's everywhere. Yeah, no, it really is. And, uh, the, the sort of, all the times that I've visited have been in, in the summertime. So I've never done the sort of jump into the, uh, frozen lake post sauna, you know, John Roderick style, but, uh, but it's still quite bracing when you jump in even a, you know, 40 to 50 degree water after a sauna and, uh, you, you know, but it, yeah, it, it is pretty a remarkable thing. And, uh, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, I take full of advantage of it. The, it seems to have only invaded American culture in the YMCA uh, or in the, you know, the, the gym. Yeah, I was going to say I have I have been in a sauna and I have been in a steam room both um, in, in in the context of, of, of gyms or uh, those kind of situations. But yeah, never as a social social event in Finland. So speaking of dangerous products, mm -hmm. um, 
did you drink any uh, any Pruno while you were there, following these newly uh, these new internet recipes for Pruno? No, I've actually uh, I've actually stayed out of jail, and so have never <laughs> never had cause to to drink uh, to drink Pruno. And for, again, for those that, that don't know, although I don't know why you're listening to this and you don't know, because we we've, we've mentioned it several times on the podcast, Pruno is a uh, a way of um, making your own. Um, uh, alcohol-containing beverage yeah, hooch, uh, while you're while you're in jail, uh, basically from whatever fermentable carbohydrates you can get your hands on, and it's sometimes linked to botulism when you when you get uh, the wrong kind of carbohydrates in there that might be contaminated with seabot uh, spores. Well, I'm gluten-free, uh, so uh, I don't need to worry about that in my in my prison hooch. And I don't think it's just for prisoners anymore. I think that you know, <laughs> that's that's a that's they have to take that and run with it. Yeah, uh, my, Primo, my, not li- just... my life is a prison. I, I can't escape it. And uh, <laughs> nothing like a little mango papaya homemade pruno to get you through the that long afternoon. If you say so, Mike. <laughs> I just wanted to know if Ben was going to validate any recipes. I don't know. I think he's but he's right now the latest project he's working on is cooking uh baking cookies in your car, I think. Uh um but uh and and we're still we're still waiting to to do the dishwasher cooking, but I I don't I don't well, think I don't he's see gonna... why you can't combine these things and make some dishwasher <laughs> Seems uh seems just like a natural. It's a good fit. I use my ice cream maker to make my <laughs> Seriously, do you make yeah. Bruno? No. <laughs> no I know. Brewed beer in the past, but uh, but no, I've never never ventured forth into Pruno land. I think that's a that's in all seriousness just a crazy idea. Okay, well, you know, but, but, but fermentation is like the new the new hip cool thing, though. People are fermenting all kinds of all kinds all kinds of wacky stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I couldn't believe it, it wasn't even on a recipe site where that stuff came up. It's like on this Instructables website where this Pruno recipe. You know, the Instructables is like, you know, people hacking together their like, you know, their coffee maker to shoot lasers or or something like that. It's like, uh, you know, it's part of the maker kind of fair scene where people are doing all kinds of uh, mostly tech geeky things, you know, using Arduino boards and programming them and all kinds of stuff like that. So to see uh, food products on there was, was slightly disturbing. Yeah, well, and, you know, and, and everybody thinks they're an expert in food because they eat. But um, as we we know, sometimes uh, people, you know, do uh, get things get things wrong. Um, oh, but just to close the loop on um, uh, uh, tartar, when I was in uh, New Zealand, we did go out one night with um, <clears throat> my hosts, um, all of whom are part by my partial host during the trip, at least during the Wellington part of it, um, who are all uh, food safety professionals uh, with um, um, the uh, Ministry of Primary Industries. And uh, one of the dishes we got as an appetizer was this assortment of things, which did include a, uh, um, a, a beef tartare dish. And I did eat some of that, and that was actually pretty good. Um, and as far as I know, nobody got sick from that. So, yeah, the list of food safety but, – but apparently uh, the New Zealand beef is quite, uh, is quite safe, according to uh, my colleagues at the uh, MPI. So, Well, I mean, all these risks, I think, are pretty low. I mean, in the, in the sense that if, if you got sick every time you ate it, it wouldn't become kind of a national dish. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, that's true. I mean, it's, it's all many of these, yeah, many of these things are, 
our, uh, yeah. Um, you know, but one of the, one of the things that I, again, sort of getting us back to food safety content is, was an article, um, uh, that uh, Barf Blog linked to in early July on this uh, top ten list of foodborne parasites, which uh, I think you 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 might have had something to do with that. Is that right? Jeez, uh, yeah, and uh, it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a, this was a FAO WHO thing um, done also for Codex to inform you know whether they should be paying more attention to to parasites. And of course, Codex has a trade component. So that was a, a sort of part of it. And, and, uh, and yeah, it was, I had to groan when I saw the, uh, the press release, cause there was nothing in that document that says anything like top 10 uh-huh. tried to steer. <laughs> and I, the minute I saw that, I was like, Oh God, now I'm top 10 guy, but no, uh, yeah, we, we did this. Um, it's basically a, a multi-criteria assessment to, to rank these parasites a little bit different than, than, than other work I've done, but uh, it, it was interesting because we were trying to, you know, it's hard enough when you're trying to rank, say, foodborne pathogens on their disease impact in the United States, and you're trying to compare these things like, say, listeria and salmonella that are very different uh, in terms of, you know, their human health outcomes and their incidence and so forth. Uh, and then you throw in the mix the need to consider things like impacts to you know, vulnerable socioeconomic communities and um, things like impacts to trade. And, and all of a sudden the math gets a little bit more complicated and you're, you're sort of square out of the, the sort of straight, comfortable science of risk assessment and into kind of, you know, building these kinds of uh, these models that, that come from a different, uh, a different, uh, a different place. Uh, so, yeah, it was interesting. The, the draft report's been out for over a year. Uh, and I, uh, the, the final report I think has been finished for a while, so I don't know all the steps that lead to it coming out, but yeah, it's, uh, and hopefully we'll get, we'll have a journal article or something, uh, out at some point that can kind of detail the methodology. Although I think the, the report covers, covers all the, we'll probably have more information in the, in the journal article. So it's one of those rare instances where I think you can actually, you'll probably have a better ability to assess the validity of the work by reading the report than reading the peer-reviewed article. That being said, obviously peer review is an incredibly important part to make sure that, that what we did is, is correct. But, well, but didn't the, uh, didn't the FAO WHO report get peer reviewed? Uh, yeah, but I think that's, that's a little bit different than, um, than sort of a journal peer review. Obviously, you know, it, uh, I think that those kinds of institutional peer reviews I think are important, but, um, to me, they never carry as much weight as a as a sort of uh, you know kind of especially a double blind you know although that's sort of seems rare these days but a uh, you know that kind of uh, that kind of peer review for a journal I think always gets a little bit more uh, uh, more scrutiny. Hmm. That's interesting. But that's that's my own you know opinion, but uh, I I certainly want this thing in a journal, and uh, hopefully it won't take too long to to get it there. Yeah, well, and yeah, pick I, some. I got an hour this afternoon, so I'll just uh, you know. Just crank that out. Just crank it right out. <laughs> uh, is that is that some kind of a dig at me uh, from something I I said a long time ago on Twitter? I think yeah. Never never forget. No, oh. you said I think on the podcast I on the podcast. Okay, yeah. In 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 uh, in. Uh, um, with, with all due respect to the comment, I think I think that article uh, was was not uh, it wasn't rejected, but it wasn't um, it needed a lot of work after it went through peer review, and I haven't haven't done that work yet, so I think I withdrew the manuscript. So um, 
uh, I think, uh, anyway, it's it, slightly more than one hour, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not, I'm not going to let that go. That's thanks, Mike. I, 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 pre- I appreciate that. Um, so, but you know, like it's, it's the, the article is entitled a multi-criteria based ranking for risk management. How can it not be a top 10 list? <laughs> that's, that's what you did. You made a list in rank order. Yeah, it doesn't. There's more than ten items. The thing is that oh. we never made a cutoff. Uh, mm-hmm. We did rank these things in order, and I think the other thing is that um, there, these are their ranking. You know, for this particular context, that they're sort of suited to the question at hand. And so, I, I think if you look at what drives the results, obviously we're uh, something like the the echinococci, you know, echinococcus granulosus or multi uh, locularis, um, both of which have a potential but possibly huge issue in produce, right, where we don't have a very good sense of um, of the pathways for exposure, but it's sort of hypothesized that produce could be very important, and therefore those score highly. It's a very different kind of context than, than sort of Lantanius uh, solium, you know, pork tapeworm, where trade is obviously hugely important, and we have a very known, uh, you know, a very well-characterized zoonotic, you know, pathway where we know consumption leads to disease and we, you know, we have a pretty good sense of it. So the problem with a list like this is that it always includes a, you know, such very different things that, that ranking them uh, is uncomfortable. But I think from Codex's perspective, they need to decide well, where are we going to focus our attention? And so for some of these things, I think it's more research. For some of them, it's maybe, uh, you know, maybe goes down more into the uh, the standards setting type of type of activities, but it's, um, you know, obviously Codex isn't funding the research, but in terms of directing where they, where they think they might need something. So the, 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 the list is suited to task. And I, I, my big fear is that it gets interpreted as these are the, the top 10 risks or something, the top 10, uh, foodborne parasite risks. And it's also a global ranking. So it's obviously a pretty, pretty rough lens that we're trying to get on these things because every region of the world is just, you know, very different in terms of food consumption, in terms of endemic disease burden, in terms of what kind of pathogens are are a problem. And so we're trying to, you know, we're smoothing over all of that uh, to get at, you know, this top 10 list. It's, you know, I, I fully understand why, why that kind of thing, uh, you know, either rubs people the wrong way or, or seems like it's a, a David Letterman-esque uh, kind of uh, exercise. Right, right, and obviously uh, Toxoplasma gondii might be more important in the U.S., but Trypanosoma cruzii may be more important in Brazil, where they drink a lot more acai juice, and yeah, it's, it's so. And whatever ranking you come up with is is uh, a direct product of the weights and the criteria that you chose. And with so with different criteria or different ranks, you could produce a dramatically different ranking. Yeah, and I think a different regions of the world would have different mm-hmm. things too. So, yeah. but anyway, it, w- it was. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't mean to to sort of uh, step back from the work. I'm very hap- happy with the work, uh, given all the constraints and everything. But uh, you know, it's just always. It's always when when things come out in the press release. The the press release makes you more nervous than the than the work itself. You know. Yeah. It's just like uh, say, you know, circling back to the the sort of reporter question and then, and how these things how, how science ends up getting relayed in the news is always. Uh, you know, it's it's just always. I'm, I I don't know how you are, uh, but you know, like recently you did the you got interviewed by someone about you know what what foods you avoid, right? And uh, and don't when you when you do when you answer those, do you feel like you're just answering for yourself, or do you feel like you have a 
you know, because my my I follow different risk practices maybe than I recommend everybody follow. Right. I I might choose to eat a a a, a burger that's not cooked to 165, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and recommend that. Right. So you end up with this gulf between maybe your personal practice and what you might recommend, or you know what you might avoid versus what you might recommend other people avoid. I mean, since I'm not a pregnant woman, um, you know, obviously my my consumption patterns are very different and uh, um, than yours as a pregnant woman so no but I you know I think that all those things they flatten out and they you lose the nuance when it comes to the press release and the the um, the news story and of course the nuance is what makes it interesting right and 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 one of the things that I try to do whenever I do those those sort of interviews is to qualify, well, this is my practice versus this is the practice uh, that I would recommend that people follow. And so, I mean, I, I'm not a pregnant woman, but still one of the things I just don't like to eat um, is cantaloupe that somebody else has prepared and has sat cut and potentially unrefrigerated for who knows how long, right? So that's just one of those airline foods that I just always avoid. Um, but on the other hand, I love fresh cantaloupe as long as I've kind of handled that. Again, I'm probably not at risk of listeriosis, but it's a it's a it's just a, a trade off that I'm I'm um, you know I'm 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 not going to make for whatever reason. And sprouts are the same thing. I don't eat sprouts because I don't particularly like them. Um, I know that they can be risky, but I also, you know, have, uh, you know, I'm good. I would consider myself good friends with Bob Sanderson, president of the international sprout growers. And I know Bob runs a top notch operation. Um, and I would eat his sprouts any day with the, with the understanding that they're as safe as sprouts can possibly be. And yes, yeah, same thing with the undercooked meat, etc. So no, I don't, I don't mind getting asked those questions, and I thought it was really good in that in that USA Today piece that you're alluding to that uh, the reporter talked to to Doug Powell and to Ben Chapman and to me, and then and managed from all of our stories to weave together uh, I, what I thought was a pretty nice uh, a pretty nice piece. So, um, but yeah, and that's, yeah, I know they fall into the same you know the same things that I think we all we all you know it's a, it's usually the same types of foods that come up here but i'm surprised that none of you said that you avoid eating human flesh i think that that's uh you know reading from your guys's uh, list i mean there's a lot of things that you by excluding them from this list you obviously consume a lot of <laughs> oh yes exactly like pruno and none of us mentioned pruno right yeah so you're all very comfortable with pruno well a dog has apparently actually consumed it i have never actually consumed it <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've drank some bad juice, but uh, I think it's a little bit. It's not the same thing? I don't, I don't think so. Are you supposed to see rainbows? Oh, that's a different kind of juice, Mike. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is I felt very, very strong. I could run through a wall. Huh. Huh. Mm. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. No, I'm just saying, you know, like what what else? Uh, what other things uh, do you do you consume because they they weren't on your list? You know, would you eat uh, homemade uh, uh, homemade jerky made from a, a predator, like a bear or a panther? Nope. Yeah, I'd avoid that. I'd probably avoid that more than I avoid sprouts. Yeah, 
Yeah, but but I mean, you have to. I mean, yeah, the question the question kind of assumes a normal diet, but yes, that's. I mean, yeah, you're you're. Exactly. I'm just what I'm saying is somebody out there is reading it and they said, you know what, they did not mention, mention panther right. jerky, right? So I am going to make some panther jerky because these food safety guys said it's safe. <laughs> So, you know, I, I got a, um, uh, a request from a student to, um, and, you know, and I, I, you know, I try to be, I try to be sympathetic to, um, these, these students that, that have, that have a passion or have a cause. And I got a request, um, from a student. Let me, let me see if I can find it. Um, who wanted to talk with me about antibiotics in meat and I'm not I'm not finding the I'm not finding the student's name but I've got a meeting with him yeah I've got a meeting with him this week so uh if only I could type so uh, what what he said, uh, and I'll, I'll read from this, and I'll semi anonymous anonymize this. Um, he says, "I'm currently employed by a social advocacy, a food food and water social advocacy group. Um, I'm coordinating a film screening for the documentary film Resistance. It's about antibiotic resistance and human health issues focused with factory farm antibiotic use." I'm looking for an expert keynote speaker for this civic engagement event, which would be available on such and such a date and time. And I, I was theoretically available, although I don't really like to work in the work in the evenings. That's kind of like you know my prime, <laughs> my prime drinking time, um, prime pruno time. Yeah, prime pruno time exactly. Um, and I saw that you had uh, given a link here to. Um, uh, this Bart blog article on um, antibiotic resistance, CDC uh, antibiotic resistance in foodborne germs is an ongoing threat. Um, and, you know, I, again, as somebody who tries to straddle that public health and, and food industry world, I know that folks in the, in the food industry are, have a, especially in the, the, you know, the primary, you know, meat, meat production industries have a, a certain perspective on antibiotic use, um, which is not necessarily shared by folks in social advocacy groups. Um, and so maybe we can use this uh, BARF blog post on this uh, CDC report as a jumping off point to talk about that. So what did you, I mean, you, you gave me that link to that BARF blog article. You must have something to say about that. Oh, well, I just thought it, I, I think it's this whole, the, the antimicrobial resistance question. And so we, the, the, the article, the BARF blog article, refers to the CDC version of NARMS, right? So the re NARMS report for 2012. So it's the National Antimicrobial re or Antibiotic Resistance Monitoring System. And it's there's sort of three legs to NARMS. There's sort of the retail meat side, the live animal side, and the human side. And they track resistance uh, to, um, I don't know how many um, classes of antibiotics in... And primarily focused on Salmonella and Campylobacter, but some of depending on the animal and food and so forth, they they do look at um, so, some other pathogens. And so I guess um, I think this this question is ah man, it's 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 so vexing because obviously it, it's it's very hard to get your head around it. And um, 
you know, this, the, the role of animal antibiotics versus human, um, say over prescription or, or, uh, misuse or whatever, um, you know, which of the, what are, which of these things are more important? And you, you sort of have a lot of, in my opinion, people kind of talking across each other. Uh, so you'll have somebody, I'm exaggerating here, but maybe somebody from, uh, say the animal vet side saying, well, you know, none of these, you know, uh, resistant pathogens that we see in hospitals are, you know, they're all resistant to drug, human drugs, not resistant to these animal drugs. And then, of course, um, from the other side, you sort of have the, the, the typical quote that 80% of antibiotics are used on the farm and how they all play into this just complicated system of, of, um, of bacterial evolution in response to both human, you know, and animal, you know, uh, animal antibiotic use and, and how that all feeds into it, regardless of when you get into how these things spread through wildlife or through the environment or before you even get into sort of the clonal spread of resistance to, to progeny versus the, the gene transfer, sort of the, 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 the antibiotic resistance genes moving back and forth. And I guess to me, this is like a hugely frustrating and challenging issue because it does seem to me to be hugely important public health problem with potential. And, and I think that the scope of the role of, of antibiotic use on farms is not very well, you know, I think a lot of people have differing opinions there. So, you know, it's, it's the, this, to the extent it's, it's seen as a food safety question or a food production question or a public health question overall. Um, I didn't have a particular point other than to say that, you know, I think that this, this is going to continue to grow. And I, I guess I wonder how you see, you know, I think, for example, this morning, one of the challenges I see with this is this miscommunication. I see it as a, one of the reasons why I throw it out there. I think something that, um, you know, you and Ben and Doug, uh, I think, think a lot more about how we communicate these things than I sometimes do. And, uh, and how we communicate these ideas of what's going on with, with, with antibiotic resistance and how we sort of find some nuance in here. I mean, the, this, you know, I was, so I was looking at a, a graphic this morning where somebody did this really cool graphic where they look, they listed, um, all the, the sort of, the resistant pathogens sort of on the, on one axis and the, the antibiotics to which they might be resistant on the other axis with a sort of bubble chart to show sort of the degree of resistance, I guess. And, uh, and then you look in that chart and you see something like E. coli, uh, which is listed as food poisoning, and you see it resistant to a bunch of things. Um, but, of course, not all E. coli are pathogenic. And actually, uh, with Shiga toxin producing E. coli, you actually don't want to treat them with antibiotics because it, it actually promotes uh, excision of the, the Shiga toxin genes from the the bacteria from the, uh, the phage it's on or whatever. So it's, you know, you, you sort of conflate this story where you say, okay, well, we're going to take this big picture of all these different pathogens and we're going to throw E. coli in here and say that it's the food, food poisoning E. coli. But of course there's, I mean, there's non-pathogenic E. coli and, you know, obviously the transmission of resistance genes on those commensals could be important, but you also have all these pathogenic strains, some of which, um, 
have have uh, have resistance, but some of but not all E. coli are foodborne either, right? You've got the the UTI associated uh, E. coli and so forth. So it's just this this mishmash, and I guess I wonder where you see a through line here. And I guess your answer in terms of uh, deferring, uh, not going to this sort of resistance uh, screening. Uh, it maybe answers it, right? It's that it's it's easier to not engage on it. Or, it's, I mean, not easier. Yeah. I don't mean to be uh, sort of putting you out for that. I just mean it's it's uh, maybe better not to. Well, it's, the problem is it's complicated, right? It's really complicated. And, yeah, it's real, it's real easy to say uh, antibiotics are bad. And I love that statistic that you quoted at the beginning of your statement, which is that 80% of all antibiotics are used on the farm, right? Yeah. Yes, it's very easy to paint a big target on the back of the, the, the you know, um, of the, 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 Factory, I mean, just the language factory farms just sets me off. So, so it's really easy to paint a big target on the backs of the factory farm folks and say they're the problem. That's where the antibiotics are used. But, but the truth is it's a lot more subtle and it's a lot more nuanced. And part of my reason for not wanting to engage on this is I don't I, – I really feel like somebody needs to push back on these activist types but – it i don't feel qualified and i don't really have the time or the the bandwidth to get informed to the point where i could have a discussion where i feel like i could hold my own so i mean part of my reason for asking you the question is just to to see what your what your take is on it but it sounds like it's similar to mine in that it's it's really complicated and i don't think that we have a solution um certainly i I think mm -hmm. that one of the things that appeals to me about it as an issue is that i i think it's similar to how we deal with salmonella where say um uh if you look at salmonella, right, you have FSIS uh, regulating some commodities and FDA regulating others. And here's a pathogen where I, I think compared to some other foodborne pathogens, salmonella is dispersed across quite a few food commodities across all agencies. And so to me, it it's, it's how are we going to get around this salmonella problem, this ecological problem, right, where we have now salmonella moving through the environment. We have it uh, maybe in, pro, you know, in produce, in uh, meat and poultry. We have it sort of in all these commodities. If we just tried to pick one and sort of play whack-a-mole with it, we're not actually, not actually going to solve the problem. And I think it's a similar, you know, you have to sort of address them kind of hand-in-hand hand because the, the solutions – uh, you know, you might have solutions that, that solve one problem and cause another, or you have solutions that, that maybe fix both problems. But similarly with antimicrobial resistance, I don't think the answer can be either just regulate on the farm or only worry about human overuse. And or, um, you know, with hospital-acquired infections, there's all kinds of stuff there about that has to do with, with hygiene in hospitals and so forth that, that isn't actually about prescription use, but it's just about uh, improving practices in hospitals. So I think it's this sort of big public health challenge that requires us to cross these lines and to sort of make sense of this complicated picture. And I totally agree that two sides pointing at each other and blaming each other actually leads us down a path where nobody does anything because um, you sort of say, well, it's, I'm not the one causing the problem. You're the one causing the problem. And it, it kind of goes around and around. But it's absolutely a problem we need to wrestle with. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate you bringing up the hospital cross-contamination piece, and I think I told a story quite some time ago on the podcast about when my wife was in the emergency room um, and the the um, the the emergency the ER doc uh, basically handling uh, or, or the exposed end of her nephrostomy tube and the the ER doc pushing it back into her uh, back into her kidney and then me suggesting, well, gosh. You know, shouldn't she have a prophylactic course of antibiotics? And the ER doc sort of thinking about it for a minute and saying, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I mean, and it's just like, come on. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, you know, granted, I'm a microbiologist. Granted, I study cross-contamination. So I spend a lot of time thinking about this, um, you know, um, but that, that's, that obviously wasn't something that had even occurred to the ER doc to think about. Um, yeah. And that's part of the problem. Again, not to, not to, as I think you very, very clearly pointed out, you're not pointing fingers. It's a, it's a complicated, multi-dimensional, multi-connected problem. And yeah, 80% of antibiotic use is on the farm, but, you know, and that's an easy thing to point at, but oh boy, give me a, give me a magic pill when my kid is sick. You know, I don't, I don't want to wait for the call. See, that's, I, I, I wonder, I wonder, I want to talk to somebody in the medical community who's been around for a while. I wonder if, um, Throat, because when I was a kid growing up, and you're you're younger than me, so maybe your perspective will be different. When I was a kid growing up, one of the big things when you were sick is you did a throat culture because you wanted to see if you had a strep throat or not. And I don't think we do that anymore. I think that the standard thing is just to, if the kid has an infection or what seems to be an infection, whether it's viral or bacterial, to give them antibiotics. So, and then you have I think that's something that's very hard to speak to from I think personal experience because mm. I think it just varies probably by. Um, but, but we always, I mean, whenever, I think they won't, there's, there's actually rapid strep tests. I don't know if those existed before where they can get a presumptive, uh, and then, uh, get back to you in 24 hours or something with the final strep test. But no, we, we, we've frequently get, I mean, from our personal experience with two young kids, we've had throat cultures, um, Quite often, I think where we don't have any culturing done is usually something like an, an ear infection or something like that. But I don't know whether that's my doctor or that I'm not going in there demanding antibiotics. Um, you know, usually I just, you know, so I, I don't know uh, what the overall trend is with throat cultures. But but I can at least say that 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 we have um, we have had them for for our kids when when there's sort of this you know before there's administration of uh, antibiotics huh that's cuz yeah it's cuz certainly when i was a kid i remember doing it when my kids were growing up i don't remember um that they ever had them but but that's interesting that you know may, maybe it's maybe it's just a matter of personal family physician practice or or maybe it's regional or or maybe there is a real you know swing back and forth over time so yeah yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I, I I think I went on this rambling rant before, but I think where I wanted to go was that you know how do we cross this line between um, what's happening in the, in the in medical facilities and what's happening on farms? I mean, it's it, you sort of these are two arms and they sort of move independently. And uh, I think to wrestle with this problem, we need to find a way to kind of bridge that. And and I just don't. Even if you look at the NARMS data, you've got three. NARM sounds like one program, but it's actually three separate programs that happen to work on some of the same bacteria. And I think they do 
they do work with each other, but there's basically you get a CDC report, an FDA report, an FSIS report, and then an executive summary. Um, but even there, you know, where we're trying to wrestle with this issue in food, we've still got this kind of, you know, we're not actually uh, addressing the problem holistically. And I mean, I guess this this One Health stuff gets thrown around, you know, maybe a little bit uh, too loosely sometimes, but it, it does sort of have some appeal when you're trying to deal with um, this kind of ecological problem where it's just, you know, it's everywhere. And it's not like we can just solve it only if we act in food or only, I think, if we act in hospitals. Yeah. When I, when I first heard One Health, it seemed like just a, a popular buzzword that we were going to, you know, was like the next hot thing that everybody was going to yeah. obsess about. But I agree with you 100% that that, that it, for a problem like this, where there is a public health component, there is an FDA-regulated component and a USDA-regulated component that we really do need to – I mean, again, the, the bacteria don't care, right? They're going to they're gonna be wherever. They're going to share um, antibiotic resistance traits whenever they can, wherever they can, governed by whatever science underlies that. And, and they're going to move around from system to system. And we need to really – yeah, by focusing on only one aspect, we're going to miss the, the larger picture. And like you said – you know, we're going to maybe by fixing the problem one place, we're going to make it worse somewhere else. Where we ought to be looking for is what are the things that we can do that will that will help help fix the problem in two or more locations. Right, right. Well, and I mean, I think there is just as just as there might be poor usage practices in hospitals. I mean, I, I think it is worth thinking that, you know, I mean, I know that uh, I talk a lot, but you don't need to hang up on me. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've been very judiciously muting, and the the hang up button is right next to the mute button. Which I don't is, know why they do that. It is <sighs> mind boggling. Poor poor UI. Um, <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, Mike. So no, 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 no. Mike, anyway, so for those of you following along at home, I just hung up on Mike as he was mid <laughs> mid brilliant sentence. Yeah, yeah. No, anyway, I don't know. I think that I I do think it's worth thinking. Well, what are these activities that we, we should be curtailing? And, and I think it's it's hard because we're sort of all in it together, but the sort of burden of change is going to be borne by not everybody, right? I mean, it's right. It, well, there's it's a... going to ultimately come down to, you know, uh, food animal producers who, um, who are using uh, possible, you know, uh, Antibiotics possibly as prophylactics, but also as, as growth promoters. And it, it is, uh, I think some of those, those are, you, you can say that they're not caught. You, you can sort of make claims that they're not the sort of the root cause of the problem, but you really can't make the claim that they're not adding antibiotic pressure to the environment, right? I mean, it's a, it's a matter of scale, not a matter of if. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of degree. And right. And so the, the, the solution to the problem is going to impact somebody, right? Either, either a farmer is going to have to basically, it's going to cost more or there's going to be additional pressures. And again, that feeds back so that the higher prices of the food supply or, or if, there's, if there's pressures on the other side that says that, that family physicians are overprescribing, well, then that's going to mean that they're going to prescribe less. And what that's going to potentially mean is going to be a public 
public health impact there because now somebody's kid who needs an antibiotic might not get it because we're make we're we're, we're putting you know tightening down on that or or maybe if we apply additional scrutiny to hospitals uh, now we're going to add to healthcare costs because now we're making it more burdensome for medical professionals to move through um, the hospital environment or maybe we're going to increase cl- cleaning costs so there's a there's a cost to everything right and there's a trade off to everything and what we want to do and this is again in a in, in played out in a smaller way anytime we make a food safety regulation or we, we change a practice is someone someone is always going to pay a cost from that and someone is always going to reap a benefit um, and hopefully someone will reach a benefit. May, maybe even will we'll increase costs and nobody will benefit or maybe it'll, the benefits will go down but any potential change will increase costs to somebody and that's going to and that, that may happen disproportionately through the system and so the person that, that bears the cost might not reap the benefit and vice versa but hey, that's, you know, that's the way, that's what, I mean, that's what we have to do to, to solve the problem, right? Right. And I mean, I think it's also within reason that that some of these actions that we take actually don't solve the problem. Right. I mean, with some I think that the history is pretty mixed with um, uh, I don't know if mixed is fair, but it it seems like with with some um, antibiotics, uh, withdrawing them from animal use has led to reductions in, in resistant strains but with others it's it hasn't in part because it's not the only source of resistance and in part because the way you know once the cat's out of the bag and 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 in some cases that's it um you know that that it's not like a faucet that you just turn it off and all of a sudden you know it it dries up or something like that so i think that that's going to be a real challenge too when we come to address this is that we're going to enact i think ultimately we're going to end up enacting policies that 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 it's very difficult to measure an impact in terms of reduction, but you may be able to measure or estimate an impact in, in, in the fact that something stopped getting worse. Right. And, and yeah, and it's certainly, we can pr- pr- point to examples. I think Denmark has been a real leader um, where they've gone to, you know, this, these very strict um, um, guidelines or very strict policies on antibiotic re- use. And the science looks like it really has made a difference. Now, the question is, does that let, let's assume for this for the sake of discussion that the science is right and and that that is indeed really what happened and what and you know we understand that system it's not even clear that would scale to the u.s production system because we maybe raise animals differently or the farms are spaced differently or the association of animal and plant agriculture is different or what have you right so a solution that works in one country might not even work in another country so well, yeah, and I think there's even you know you can see different rates of disease in in parts of the U.S. We have such a large geography. I'm I'm not as convinced by the density argument as I am because they I mean even though, but but I am but I think that's certainly a consideration. But I think that the, you know the the fact that you I think that the the environment the role of the environment in these things persisting is important and different. Um, Topographies and weather patterns and so forth play a huge role in these things. So I think it's, you know, you can look at some of the Scandinavian countries that have no, you know, certain pathogens that they're just free of uh, just naturally because maybe they haven't been introduced and they have strict controls on, um, you know, product coming in, uh, you know, live animals coming in and so forth. Uh, well, that's what that's what they said over and over again in Finland. No salmonella in 
in beef or something. I don't, some something wacky like that that just made no sense, but turns out it's true. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think, but that's. I mean, they've. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, you know, some of the studies on E. coli in Scotland, and you know, you can't look at these these things country by country. It's not just that you know, in some places people are eating raw meat, and other people places people are cooking it. It's just. These, you know, there's different summers, different humidities, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. We know, we know, we know matters, and so mm-hmm. uh, it's to some extent not surprising. And I guess the, you know, in places like Scandinavia, maybe these things just don't, you know, parts of the the further north you go, they they just don't manage to last through the winter mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, maybe that has to do with historically the the types of animal production they did, right? I mean, I think if you look at Scandinavian countries, maybe. Poultry is, you know, not as big as as maybe seafood or something. You know, there's all kinds of ways that you could look at how they got there. But yeah, I think they are. I can't remember if they're salmonella free and and in everything. But yeah, I seem to recall um, being salmonella free. I thought they had salmonella free poultry, but I or chicken, but I I, I don't know. Yeah, but I well, think it's, it's a similar thing. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's been it's been long enough since I took that trip that I've forgotten the details of it. But it was it was fascinating, and that's why if you go to the food safety and I spent some time in in Finland visiting with uh, colleagues at the University of Helsinki, and they study listeria and botulism because those are the problems. Those are the food safety problems in that country. It's not so much salmonella and E. coli, which just sort of just again just sort of blew my mind. Yeah, that that it is it is fascinating because I think we just take so many things uh, for granted. And I mean, for me, it's you know I I got involved in looking at food safety. You know, I don't know somewhere in the early two thousands, but it it's got to look very different than to somebody like you who was maybe around in the in the nineties more, where where you know after or maybe during Jack in the Box, right, where things things must look. Just your view of the world and people who who sort of went through that have a certain a different view of the world than people who who sort of entered it later uh, yeah and I think even the the perspective within the industry has changed and is starting is well let's say it's starting to change there are still some old line reactionary folks um, in the meat in the meat industry particularly I'm thinking about who who insist that you know, if the consumers would just cook it, everything would be fine. But I think for the, at least in some segments of the food industry, that's changing. And we're realizing that, no, that there, there, there are other, there are things that the industry can do and in fact should do to, to fix the problem. And again, you know, I keep thinking about back to foster farms. I mean, something is going on there, right? I mean, they're, they're, but, but I mean, and they're smart people at foster farms, right? They're, they're must be trying to solve the problem. I wish they'd be talking more about what they were trying to do to solve the problem. Yeah. But, but I uh, think they've, they've, uh, I think they've started talking about it a little bit more recently, but it doesn't, uh, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, they went through some, some pretty dramatic changes. It seems like, uh, to get their rates down. But if you look at this outbreak, it's just ongoing. And although it's not the same exact strain, you know, that it, it was a, it, although this, the, you know, there's sort of two connected outbreaks with only a little bit of gap between them, and and you know they spiked last year in the in the late summer, I think, you know, as a lot of these outbreaks do, and so it's, you know, it's a big question what's going to happen later this summer, I think, with with foster farms, you know, do they have this under control or not? I mean, there's obviously there's they've got some strain, and and it's is it unusual or is it just the fact that somehow this strain has it's easier to track be, because it's uh, it's only isolated from these products or something like that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but it, it certainly seems like, you know, the fact that it's been going on for so long is just, it's pretty, 
pretty surreal, I think. Yeah, and and you're you're right. I mean, I we often or I often talk about you know whether something rises to the level of attention of the CDC radar, and it may it may be that every chicken company out there in the world is causing problems like this, but there is something unique about the the antibiotic fingerprint on this strain that makes it just show up. And and in fact, Foster Farms, you know, this is interesting. The Foster Farms is really no better or no worse than anybody else. They just have a signal that's particularly easy to detect by the public health system. And that's not, not a, a thought that I actually had before we had this podcast and this conversation. But, you know, it could be that all my banging on Foster Farms is, is unwarranted. They just were unlucky enough to have a particularly obvious signal. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that easier either, but it, it sort of, it definitely raises the question to me just because it's been, you know, they've obviously had all kinds of people in there trying everything. Obviously, people are disappointed that there's no recall, but I think short of, you know, burning this plant to the ground, I mean, I don't know. It, it certainly seems like they've tried to do a lot of things, and maybe they haven't, and maybe, you know, whatever, but it does seem like there's something incredibly unusual going on uh, on here, given that it, it does seem like they've been trying to uh, decrease their rates of salmonella down to, to very low levels. And, and they've, I, I don't know if they've been fully, you know, I, I, I probably should know more before I open my mouth, but I, I think they've released some of that information, but, I, but I don't know. It's, it's just confounding. And they, you know, come on now, Mike, let's be fair. They did do a recall. They 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 recalled products produced on March eighth, tenth, and eleventh. <laughs> right, but the, but that's because they finally linked the yeah. illness to the exact to the package. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so they sort of had the smoking gun that was enough to to do it. But I mean, the the, the sort of the epidemiological the, uh, stuff is pretty compelling. I think when you find the strain and and it's associated only with their product and so forth, uh, it's. I, I definitely believe that these illnesses are linked. It's just the question is, is this something that we're, where we're somehow easy, we're able to de- pull it out. I mean, I know that that's an issue sometimes with some of the, uh, the 0157 strains where you have some of the same clonal strains sort of popping up all, all the time. So it's very difficult to connect the dots, but, but I don't know if, if with, you know, with this particular strain and this particular, you know, PFGE pattern and antimicrobial resistance profile, whether it's uh, it's somehow just, um, you know, now that they're looking for it, it's popping up everywhere. I, I, it's it's hard to say. But, yeah, if this is kind of ongoing uh, and maybe every plant is doing this, but we're just not able to connect the dots in this way, um, you know, it's kind of a troubling thought. Maybe we, maybe we should just, on that positive note, maybe we should just leave it there. <laughs> uh, we know nothing. Back to the hooch. Back to the Uno. Well, that's good. And I ran out of time to ask you about uh, wooden cutting boards. Oh no, no. Let's. Uh, we we have we have we have time. We don't have to end. I, I, according to my uh, call recorder here, we've only been talking for uh, thirteen minutes. Perfect. <laughs> Just edit all the the, the the other fifty minutes out. Right. So no. What what do you want to what do you want to talk about about cutting boards? So uh, when we were in Marseille at the IFP Europe uh, meeting, um, I guess a year and a half ago or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. and you were talking about some research that you guys had done uh, looking at uh, transfer coefficients, um, and you looked at different 
materials um, and different kinds of cutting boards. And one of the the peop- one of the audience members asked why you didn't look at wood. Mm. And uh, the, the, I had the same thought, and I had always wanted to follow up with you with, with that because I think I'm very interested in the there's a lot of competing or uh it seems to me a lot of advice about cutting boards that, that kind of conflict that, that conflicts and um i haven't managed to kind of weave or convince myself of of any truth in this area it seems like such a simple question but you know there's there's some of the research i think that you even cited by uh um by dean clivers mm-hmm. was it yep. who, who yep. did some stuff on wooden cutting boards and yep. not a lot else you see other people talking about plastic and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, I, I don't know if it's worth getting in. I'll, I'll let you speak to the particulars, but, uh, for me, this question of, you know, there's been stuff that suggests wooden, wooden cutting boards are less safe and others that suggest that, um, that it's misleading because the, I, I think the arguments are maybe that the, depending on type of wood, the uh, bacteria uh, are are killed by sort of natural properties of the wood or else uh, the cells don't escape the wood or something like that. And uh, uh, so some of those those issues, I, I think I, I wanted to sort of tease tease out. Yeah. And that, this this is a uh, I think kind of a um, yeah, I mean, we could probably do a whole you know, arc on the podcast about, about wood. And we did, we have talked in the past about FDA and I don't know if the episode we're so far behind on posting them, but we did some recordings on the FDA uh, ban on, or the FDA's activities on artisanal uh, wooden. (laughs) Sorry. I have to, I say that word that way now, Um, uh, uh, which I think is one of the correct pronunciations. Um, um, Wooden cutting, uh, wooden shelves for storage of cheese. And, and yeah, and we'll, we'll link to, there's a very nice page, which is still up at UC Davis, which um, summarizes Dean Cliver's uh, work on, on wooden cutting boards. Um, and we're actually doing some work right now um, as kind of a follow-up to my rant on the five-second rule, um, which points out, you know, ju- which has also appeared on previous editions of this podcast. Um, and it's it's complicated, right? So with – well, what, let's, let's talk about uh, – Tr- you know, uh, cross-contamination or transfer generally. So one of the issues that we're coming up with, we're, we're faced with now with the work that we're doing on trying to, you know, again, basically show show people how you would do research to prove or disprove the five-second rule. And I mean, clearly the five-second rule is, is nonsense, but, but it's an opportunity to do some good science. And one of the issues that we're facing is, so Anytime you're studying cross-contamination between two surfaces, you have the, the originating surface and, and the, the contacted surface. And you have to know, to get the transfer coefficient, you have to know the concentration on the originating surface. But the problem is once you touch the originating surface to the, to the, the, the contact surface, now you've disrupted the concentration on the originating surface. And so what you have to do is, and we see this with hand-washing research too, you have to have basically two originating surfaces you inoculate them the same way, and your, your your assumption is that the concentrations are the same. So you measure one, and you use the other to do the transfer. And what happens is when you inoculate a surface with bacteria, the the, the concentration starts to change. As so, first of all, there's the the moisture that's present on the surface evaporates, and that is going to result in the death of some cells. But it also that availability of that moisture 
influences the transferability of those cells. And, and I really believe there's a lot more good science to be done around this because even, even a surface that is visibly dry may still have moisture present that may influence the transfer, right? And then people who study biofilms say, well, there might be biofilm formation or there might be attachment of the bacteria. I'm, I'm still not convinced as a guy that, you know, likes to imagine bacteria as being little inert billiard balls because, you know, that makes my, my life easier. Um, um, that, they, that, in fact, may not be true. They're obviously living things and they are interacting uh, biochemically, biologically with that surface. So, so first of all, you have the changing starting concentration of the originating surface, and that's going to change um, over time as the moisture leaves, as the cells interact with the, the surface by attaching or, or what have you. And then you measure that, and again, even that measurement of that surface is going to be impacted. What if a cell is so irreversibly bound that it's not going to be recovered by your recovery um, method. Well, again, if it's irreversibly bound to the surface, well, then it, then it's irrelevant from a food safety perspective. So that, that, you know, that, that maybe that problem solves itself. So now, now you move from, let's say a stainless steel surface to a wooden surface. Well, now you, or, or a plastic surface with a wooden surface, you have microorganisms that are now going down into the wood. So, so now the question is, okay, so those are no longer at the surface, so are they a food safety risk or are they a transfer risk or not? Now, there was some work done by the FDA to kind of counteract some of Dean Cliver's research to show that you can get cells actually in that wood environment and that you can see some evidence that they're still alive and they may be growing. If you place nutrients on that, they may grow in the wood or the cells may elongate. So maybe you're creating, I don't know, a biofilm or, or you're colonizing that wood. And in fact, again, for the perspective of the artisanal cheesemakers, um, you're actually, if you get good bacteria growing on those shelves, you're actually helping to control listeria because you have this colonization of good bacteria keeping out the bad bacteria. So, but so again, you have these cells on the wooden surface. So some of them are being absorbed, adsorbed, absorbed. I don't know which way, which way it is, but they're going into the wood. So they're no longer on the surface. Maybe they're not available for transfer. And then what Cliver's point was, well, that there's also um, antimicrobials in the wood. So that you have these chemicals that are these these you know biological chemicals agents in the wood, um, oils or resins or what have you, and those are working to inactivate the bacteria. Um, and so you have that effect going on too. So again, just like the antibiotic question and just like so many things on this podcast it turns out and so many things in science generally it turns out the more you you dig into it and look at it the more complicated it becomes so did i did i answer your question in any of that well the, i think the question though ultimately comes down to what to recommend to people mm, because mm -hmm. i think also with some of the the plastic work there's similarly it seems to me and again I, this is something where you know i'm not a microbiologist so i try to make sense of this literature you know, to sort of say, well, what, what do you do? I, I happen to use wood at home and I, uh, in part because I don't have a dishwasher. And so I can't, um, you know, I can't just throw my, uh, my plastic cutting boards in the dishwasher and, and deal with it that way. Although I guess, you know, you're, you're still not maybe getting up to sterilization temperatures in a home dishwasher anyway, but in any event, so I, I actually sterilize mine with 
with boiling water and um and then sometimes if it's uh, particularly egregious looking and then i'll uh i'll get the bleach solution out on it uh sometimes as well but i think so for me i have my own way of doing things and i always wonder you know am i doing something really dumb and uh and uh you know there's sort of a long history of using wooden cutting boards we have these plastic cutting boards that you know some studies and again i I do not mean to be definitive here at all but seem to suggest that maybe bacteria dig down in those grooves that are that are that are cut into the plastic and that if you don't have a hot enough uh dishwasher maybe you're not getting them out so it's it's the risks for a home cook are seem to me very different than those in a in a um in a commercial kitchen uh in terms of what what you're doing to both on, on the cutting board and 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 sort of how you're cleaning it. But, uh, but anyway, so to me, the question comes down to what advice to give people. And I, when I look at this, it does not seem to me to be very clear advice. And, and so that's, that's kind of where I, um, where I come down. Cause one of the things that always comes up is, you know, use separate cutting boards. But uh, I think for a lot of people, that's not, that's not always a feasible, feasible advice to the consumer to have, you know, this array of cutting boards all color coded or, or something like that. And so the question is, well, you know, is there a choice in material and does it, does it really matter? And, um, so for me, it comes down to what, what advice to give people. And it's like one of those questions where I get them from family relatives or something like that, you know, like with, you know, you get those random food safety questions and I've gotten that one a couple of times and, uh, I just never quite know what to say. Yeah. You know, and all right. So let me, let me put on, so take off my scientist hat and put on my extension specialist hat. Not that extension specialists are not scientists. What advice would I give? Um, and I, I guess that historically the advice that I had given is that it's okay f- to have wooden cutting boards, um, but I don't recommend them for raw meat. So if you have a wooden cutting board, it's okay to use that for bread. I guess you could use that for vegetables as well, um, but but I don't recommend that for meat. And for, for meat products, I recommend using a plastic cutting board. But you're right, and there, I think there is even some research on, on plastic cutting boards and the fact that if you have big grooves, that, that those can harbor bacteria and those are hard to clean. I think um, I don't know how you possibly don't have a dishwasher that boggles my mind, Mike. But um, uh, but if you don't, um, in fact, one of the very first things that I wrote as an, a young extension specialist at Rutgers was a series of fact sheets on on HACCP in the home, and we talked about cutting boards and what you would do. And through going through that peer review process, the internal peer review process, my colleague, um, Mike Solberg, um, a faculty member at Rutgers at the time, said one of the things you might want to recommend to people if they don't have a dishwasher is to pour boiling water over their cutting board. So that is absolutely uh, a super recommendation, whether it's wood or, or – I guess maybe – I don't know. Boiling water is okay on wood. I'm not, I'm not up to speed on good, good current wood uh, uh, handling practices in, in terms of cutting boards. But um, – but certainly uh, boiling, pouring boiling water over a cutting board is a great idea. Getting rid of any visible debris and, and, and you know, you can, the, the old adage, you can't sanitize a dirty surface, right? You have to get the, 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 the gunk off, the, you know, the, the visible debris off before you sanitize it. You can sanitize sure. it with bleach. You can sanitize it with, with boiling water. Um, we, run our, we don't run our wooden cutting boards through the dishwasher. We, we do have a dishwasher here in my house. Um, we do run our plastic cutting boards through it. And then periodically, um, we will you know, discard those cutting boards when they get really old and scarred up and, and get a new one. So, so the, I think those are all probably best practices. I'm not sure 
they're all necessarily science-based. I think that there's definitely some more room for some good science to be done. Um, I, I certainly think, and I've you know gone on record as you know in being interviewed talking about this wooden shelving in in uh, you know artisanal cheese making um, that that definitely. Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be a risk there. And I think FDA was premature in some of their, their comments. Um, if, if there, if there is not an ongoing listeria problem in a plant, um, I don't think there's any benefit to taking out the wooden shelving. And in fact, it might make the problem worse. Um, but if there is listeria established in those, that wooden shelving, then by all means, that's a good way to get rid of it is to, is, is to get rid of the wooden shelving. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of my, that was, was, yeah, I think that with the wooden shelving, it seems like, you know, especially in a, in a production environment, you say, well, here, we know, we know what we're concerned about, right? We're concerned about listeria and we can, we can look for it. And if we find it, you know, that's different than if we don't find it, um, and, right. and to me, that's a you know obviously I'm not going to do that at home uh, for my wooden cutting board, but I I think it's it is this it just gets to this complicated picture. I mean, the boiling water thing is a you know most things you can clean with boiling water. You know, I mean, it's not going to uh, you know it's pretty pretty warm, not a hospitable environment for for things. But no, I think that the uh, you know so for me it's like I've because I don't have a dishwasher and I. Uh, do my uh silly uh aeropress coffee you know i've got the i've got the kettle right there i don't have a keurig or whatever so i don't you know it's it's i've got a kettle right on the stove it's just as easy to to do it that way but uh but yeah no that's it's helpful to hear because it's just one of these things where um i sort of have my own personal questions about it i i don't know that i'm gonna uh go out and buy a bunch of plastic cutting boards to cut my meat on but uh uh, but maybe well, I will. Well, and you know, I mean, we should uh, we should send a team out to your kitchen and swab those cutting boards oh, and find man. out what's on them. Terrifying idea. <laughs> Did you see the? I I I posted it on Facebook. I don't I don't know if I shared it with you or not. One of my uh, one of my friends sent me a, a link to a, a Craigslist uh, thing about somebody who who wants to. Um, oh, let me find the post because it's it's absolutely hilarious. Um, we'll link to it in show notes. Uh, uh, this is a, a post on Craigslist. Convince my wife she is on a reality show about food safety. My wife is terribly dangerous in the kitchen. She cross-contaminates raw meat with other things constantly, etc., etc. Um, as such, I would like to enlist someone's help to assemble and lead a team to convince my wife that she is on a reality show about dangerous kitchen behavior. You and I will work together to plan a script and you will produce. I'm imagining that it goes something like this. One weekend, there's a knock at the door. Your team comes in. A host, a doctor, a scientist, a clean expert anyway it just goes on from there so we may, we may show up at your door mike yeah it's gonna be like the tagline there's gonorrhea everywhere ah <laughs> uh, so um but, you know i knew i did see that because uh, facebook had curated my feed because, uh, maximum enjoyment now the question is yeah, the question is that is that trying to make you uh Circling happy up. or yeah well done happy or sad or or compulsive about germs I don't know, but uh, I did not click on it. <laughs> but nor did I go to the drop down. That's like I, I no longer want to see any more of this. And then, uh, do you ever do that? Uh, say I, I don't want to see this, and then they ask you why, and it gets down to like, well, email the person who uh, posted it. 
Oh no! You know what I'm talking about? I, I, so, I do, I do, I do sometimes do that, but basically just like this no longer, this doesn't interest me, or this is offensive. Right. Well, or, so I'll see yeah. something across, you know, that mm-hmm. ran across, and it had some, you know, like half naked woman in it or whatever. And I don't mean to be a prude, prude? or whatever, mm-hmm. but I just really didn't care for it. I didn't think it's appropriate. Facebook's kind of where I share pictures of my kid and stuff and it just felt right there's there's me. there's other places you go on the internet to look for so I'm pictures not of naked it. ladies right <laughs> <laughs> why do you think i joined tumblr no but the, there's uh, some great tumblers anyway uh, but <laughs> i digress no but i mean so you know i have you know you go to click down and you're like well okay i, I don't want to see any more of this and and it gets down to the point where it is like okay no i don't find it pornography you know it's not mm-hmm. pornographic it's just not really it's not why i don't think it's appropriate but yeah Yeah. they they kind of like you have to click through six buttons and then you just give up and then they show it to you again later anyway but uh no it's uh no i I didn't do that to your uh, post either so i should i should get more of your craigslist uh postings on my facebook and 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 but you didn't respond to any of my vaguely drug drug related uh uh, responses to your amsterdam photos either so i I appreciate your restraint (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I try not to take the bait. No, I, I it's weird. I have a very uh, push, uh, uh, you know, with uh, Facebook's one of these things where I do sometimes get news through it, but uh, but uh, I do a lot uh, more posting and scanning than I do commenting. Hmm. You know, I, I had never noticed that, but now um, now that now that you mention that, I I think yeah, I, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of dump dump pictures of my kids mm-hmm. there, so uh, you know, family can see it and so forth, and then uh, just quick thumbs up on anything that I happen to see in that moment. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I, I, I do it. <laughs> issue some discretion. Yeah, and boy, you have some cute kids. I, I'm I would follow you on Facebook for no other reason than just to look at pictures of that, your adorable children. That's perverted. No, no it's no. not. <laughs> they're very cute, Michael. No, no, they're they are they are, but that's uh, that's it's it. Everybody's Facebook experience is different, uh, but mine is mostly uh, pictures of people with their kids. I think because that's what I post, that's mostly what I see from other people. Yeah, because uh, Facebook is curating your feed for you. That's right. Uh, but yeah, I don't know where else to go from there. No, I think so that's a, I think that's a, I think that's a show we've we've ended on a on kind of an, an odd note, uh, which is which is typical. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, plus I have a conference call, another call in uh, four minutes. Oh, oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. I, I, uh, thanks so much. It was uh, We talked for way too long and, and drove probably half, half the people listening, which is half of the people that download it, uh, <laughs> probably to, uh, to the point of no return. But Well, just the, just, no, the cool, just the cool people are left listening at the end. Double speed, probably. <laughs> Let's hope not. That's an abomination. <laughs> like an animal. <laughs> well, again, th- thanks, thanks a lot, Mike. And, and this should this should post uh, sometime in 2015, I think, if we stay on schedule. Sweet. Hopefully, hopefully after uh, special talks at IAFD. Let's hope. All right. Take care, Mike. Cheers. Bye. Bye.